Hey everyone, right now we are in week two of a series called Out of the Crowd. We believe that Jesus notices each of us and has called us to a greater purpose in life. Today the message is called Hidden to Known. And we're welcoming back one of our favorite guests, Kyle Eidelman. Kyle is the senior pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, which has a tremendous reach and influence, not just in Kentucky, but throughout the country. Kyle would be quick to say it's for many reasons other than his teaching, but he is one of the most gifted and biblically sound teachers that I know. Kyle is also an author. He's written many books, and his most recent one called One at a Time inspired the series that we are in right now. One of the things that I appreciate the most about Kyle is he's exactly who he presents himself to be. He's not perfect. Pretty sure last time he was here, he ate more than half the appetizer we were sharing at dinner. But he's humble. He loves the church, and he does his absolute best to follow Jesus with character and integrity. We're so glad he's here. Let's give a warm welcome to Kyle Eidelman. Hey, thank you all. And I hate to start off by calling your pastor a liar, but <laughs> here's the truth. Last time I was here, we went to eat, and he ordered as an appetizer Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Who orders Brussels sprouts as an appetizer? But they were actually pretty good. You put enough butter on anything, and it's, it's not bad. But I still think he had the majority of it. I love coming to this church. Um, so thankful for what God is doing in and through you. I love the series that you are working your way through out of the crowd. If you study the word crowd in scripture, probably the best literal definition of that word, which shows up quite a lot in the Gospels, would be a large group of unidentified people. Jesus was constantly surrounded by crowds. People would come from all over, and they were a large group of unidentified people. And in some ways, that's what we have here this morning in our campuses a large group of people, but what we want is to be identified. We want to know and be known by God and by others. We want to be called out of the crowd. That's what the gospel does. It's, it allows us to be seen and known by God, and that changes everything when we experience that. So we're going to be studying in the next few minutes how one woman experiences that in her life from the gospel of John, John chapter 4. When my kids were young, we had a room in our house that was a sitting room. It's kind of ironic, really, because nobody was allowed to sit in the sitting room. It had, like, white carpet, and my wife had a white couch in that room, and nobody, including me, was allowed to really go in that room or sit on that couch in the sitting room. But one day, she was in there straightening up, and she just happened to flip over a cushion in that, on that couch. And when she did, it exposed a stain. It was a purple fingernail polish stain. Looked like it had been there for a while. It was dried on. And my wife let me know about it when I came home from work. And, and I'm like, hey, don't look at me. I know I'm not allowed in that room. And purple's not my color. Like, that, that, it's, not my, it's not my stain. But we called our three daughters into where we were. And they all came. But they didn't walk in. They didn't walk into the room like they stopped on the threshold. Like, they knew. They <laughs> couldn't go in there. And my wife bent over to flip the cushion and reveal the stain. And when she did, my middle daughter, Morgan, just instinctively ran up the stairs and hid. So that was her intuitive response when it confronted with the evidence of something from her past that she was hoping would stay hidden. 
when it got exposed, she decided she needed to hide, and she ran up the stairs, and she hid behind a chair, and, and that is the way we tend to respond when something from our past, sometimes something we've done, a stain that we've caused, but sometimes it's something that's been done to us, and that still feels shameful to us. We still want that to stay in the dark. We're still hoping nobody will flip over that cushion. We just want to pretend like it didn't happen. And so our instinct, instead of confronting those things, is to run away from them and hide from them. This is as old as time. In Genesis, this is how Adam and Eve responded when God flipped the cushion. When they're confronted with their own guilt, what do they do? They hide from God. And then when God sees them, what's Adam do? Well, Adam takes it like a man and blames his wife, right? Like, first thing he does is, is he hides behind her. And, and we do this. We hide behind other people. We blame other people. We're quite good at it, really, letting ourselves off the hook, justifying the decisions we make, mistakes that we've made by blaming other people. Well, if it wasn't for my parents, I mean, if you would have grown up in the home I grew up in, if it wasn't for my spouse, I mean, if, if she would do what she's supposed to do, if he would treat me the way he's supposed to treat me, and we hide behind other people's failures and other people's mistakes. And, and maybe that's where some of you are right now. Like, you just find yourself hiding from God. And you don't really want to be here. Like, you do your best to avoid places like this and people like me. And conversations like these. And it's been a while since you've prayed or spent much time with God. And you don't read your Bible very often. And you're not sure why that is. It just feels like things have grown cold spiritually. But is it possible that you're just hiding? You've ran up the stairs and you're hiding behind a chair. It's just the intuitive way we respond. Sometimes we hide from other people too. Right? Like... You've had people like this in your life where suddenly they seem to ghost you, they cut you out, and you're not sure why, and may, maybe this is it. Maybe they're hiding from you. One of the ways I think we hide from others is by constantly presenting a version of ourselves that we want people to see, but not ever really being honest about who we really are or the struggles we really have. I mean, isn't that what we often do on social media? Isn't, isn't that the approach we take? We just kind of are hiding behind this version of what we want other people to think about us. I saw a t-shirt not long ago. It said, may your life sometimes be as awesome as you pretend it is on Facebook, right? Like that's our approach. And, and I think we even hide from ourselves. We don't spend a lot of time looking in the mirror, asking hard questions, but we do spend a lot of time staring at a screen. I just wonder if how, I wonder how much of what we're doing there is just hiding from ourselves. I was reading this study that made the case that the more external input that we have, the less internal reflection we tend to do. I think that's right. The more external input we have, the less internal reflection we, need to, we tend to do. And so these moments where maybe we would have in the past been a little bit honest with ourselves, we now pull out a phone and start scrolling through shorts on YouTube that's how we fall asleep at night, or that's what we do when we wake up in the morning. We don't even go into the bathroom without our phones. And so any moment that we might have to just be honest with ourselves and ask questions like, do I like who I am? Who am I becoming? What's my legacy going to be? We just don't do that. 
the days, the weeks, the months, the years just kind of all rolled together because we're hiding behind oftentimes maybe our devices. I'm just saying it might be subconscious, but we're often hiding. And that's true what, in the story that we study from John chapter 4. We read about this um, woman that Jesus meets. Here's how the story begins. Jesus is with his disciples, and they're traveling from Judea to Galilee. And in order to go from Judea to Galilee, they have to go through a town called Samaria. I say they have to. They didn't really have to. In fact, most Jews wouldn't have done it. They would have gone out of their way to walk around Samaria because you know who lived in Samaria? Samaritans. And Jews and Samaritans, it's not that they didn't just get along. They despised one another, and a Jew would go way out of his way to avoid seeing or talking to or being around a Samaritan. That's the kind of hostility that they would have had between one another. And so Jesus is with his disciples going from Judea to Galilee. And then we read this really interesting phrase in John chapter 4, verse 4. It just says they, they had to go through Samaria. They had to. I don't know. Does that, does that seem accurate? Like they had to? Like nobody was making them. And they could have gone around again. That's what most Jews would have done. So why would it say they had to go through Samaria? I think what we're going to see here is that Jesus had an appointment that he needed to keep. There was someone that he wanted to meet. In the crowds of people that surrounded him, there was one woman whose name we don't know that seems to be circled on God's calendar. And today's the day that Jesus is going to have a conversation with her. And she lives in Samaria because she's a Samaritan woman. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. Maybe. Maybe that's what that means. They get to the edge of town. The disciples go on into the town to get some food. Jesus says, I'm going to stay here at this well. And he sits down at this place called Jacob's Well. He's by himself, the heat of the day. It's not a time where people would have come to get water from the well. People instead would usually come early in the morning when it was still cool or sometimes late in the evening. But you wouldn't expect to see someone at the well during that time of the day. Jesus is there by himself, and he sees this woman approaching with a jar. It's unusual for a woman to come in the heat of the day. It's also unusual for a woman to come by herself to get water from the well. It tended to be something that the women in the community would do together. It's like going to the bathroom. They, they do it together. And so she's coming by herself with a jar to get water from this well. Jesus sees her coming, and he asks her, for some water. And the conversation begins by Jesus asking her for a drink. Chapter 4, verse 9 says, The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Why, uh, why are you talking to me? Why would we even be talking to one another? From, from her perspective, Jesus is a Jewish man, shouldn't be there, and and shouldn't want to have anything to do with her. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, this is a little confusing for her. He's talking in the third person. He's speaking metaphorically. Living water, what's that even mean? She doesn't, she doesn't understand. She's a little confused. Verse 11 
she's thinking very much in terms of physical thirst, and she says to Jesus, you have nothing to draw with from the well. The well's deep. You don't have anything to draw water from the well. So where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Do you hear a tone? I hear a tone. But hey, what are we doing? You don't even have anything to draw water with. Are you, are, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? You can get water from it without even having something to draw. Like, it just seems to me that this woman has her guard up. She wants to be left alone. That's why she came by herself. Jesus is there. He's started this conversation. He's asked her for water. And now he's talking about this living water. And she just seems, from my perspective, harsh. She just seems a little bit cold in how she responds, how she responds to him and how she engages with him. Her guard, her guard is up. But Jesus doesn't get sidetracked. He doesn't get distracted. Verse 13, he goes on. Everyone who drinks this water, the water that I give, will, or from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, that sounds pretty good to her. Uh, uh, water that will quench her thirst forever? Why not? I mean, she's skeptical, but why not? Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and keep having to come here to get water. So she's still not quite exploring the metaphor. Jesus sees her and knows her. He knows everything about her. He seems to be getting a little bit tired of this game of hide and seek. And so he says to her in verse 16, let's do this. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have isn't your husband. What you've said is quite true. And suddenly the story starts to make some sense. Jesus shines a light where she is hiding. The thing that she doesn't want to talk about. The thing that she doesn't want to be reminded of. The thing that she doesn't want other people to know about her, Jesus exposes. You've been married five times, and you're living with somebody now that you're not even married to. And he identifies the stain. The cushion gets flipped. I guess when I've heard this message preached from time to time, the emphasis is often on this woman being someone who was some kind of serial adulterer, going from husband to husband, bed to bed, this guy, then this guy, then this guy, then this guy. That's almost certainly not what's happened here. Because in those days, a woman had virtually no rights to divorce her husband, but a husband could divorce his wife for almost anything. So what you most likely have here is not someone who has cheated, been unfaithful, betrayed. You have someone most likely who has been cheated on, abandoned, betrayed, brokenhearted. Like she's often in this story turned into the 
the person who's just made a mess of her own life, and, and that might be true to some extent, but I think what's most likely is that she's been widowed a time or two, and she's been abandoned a time or two, and she's desperately in need of basic provision for life, and so now she's living with this guy she's not even married to, but no matter what the situation is, there's no doubt it's a mess. She wants to keep it hidden. She wishes things were different. It's not, her life is not how she thought it would turn out. She had in her mind a picture of the way things would go, and this is not it. And Jesus shines a light into that dark place. And the woman is immediately, I think, quite uncomfortable with the whole conversation. And so here's what she does. Pay attention to this. In verse 19, she tries to steer the conversation away from her and towards religion. She wants to hide behind religion. Verse 19, sir, I can see that you're a prophet, how else would you know these things about me? And our ancestors worshiped at this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. So what she does here is she brings up this argument that was constant and had been going on for generations between the Jews and the Gentiles, and she tries to distract Jesus with this religious argument. And so here's what I want to do. I want to push pause on our story, and I just want to pay attention to a few lies that she seems to hide behind, a few lies that she's believing, a few lies that she's telling herself about Jesus that is keeping her from being known, a few lies that she hides behind. Lie number one is that Jesus wants nothing to do with me. This is how she begins the conversation with this preconception that Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with her because she's a woman and she's a Samaritan woman and he's a Jewish man and why would he want to have anything to do with her? But I think it's deeper than that because what you have here is this woman who has experienced rejection in her life often. And if you've been rejected, then you know the guard goes up like... If you've been rejected and that's caused some wounds in your life, you don't want to experience that again. And so you don't let anybody too close. You reject before you get rejected. And, and this perhaps describes some of your relationships. Like there's nobody in your life that you allow to get too close to you. Nobody to really know you, nobody to really see you. You, you kind of want to stay in the crowd, but it's because you've experienced some kind of rejection. And when you are rejected, you tend to want to respond that way to people first. You hold that power. You don't want to feel that way again. You could flip this to better understand it. Like if someone likes you, you tend to like them. Remember this dynamic in middle school? Like maybe there was a girl in middle school that you weren't interested in until you got a note and you found out she's interested in you and then the moment you find out she's interested in you, you're interested in her. But when it comes to rejection, when people have left us feeling that way, feeling rejected, we, we tend to just hold, hold people at arm's length. We, we don't want to be in positions of vulnerability. She is thinking that Jesus sees her and doesn't want to have anything to do with her. But what she doesn't know is that when Jesus sees her, he sees her as his daughter. And she is precious to him. And he had to go to Samaria because he wanted to sit down and make sure she understood her value. And, and 
maybe he sees you in a way that you just don't see yourself. Like you're convinced that because of your past or something you've done or what's been done to you that you just don't have value, that that God doesn't really wanna have much to do with you. And I'm just telling you, you couldn't be more wrong. This is why Jesus came to earth. God so loved the broken world that he sent his only son. I was watching this documentary not that long ago called um, The Landfill Harmonic. And it was about this really poor community in Paraguay. When I say really poor, I mean this community literally was on top of a dump. 1,500 tons of trash would be delivered to this dump every day. And there were about 100 people who lived in this dump, in this landfill. And that's how they survived. They would find the food they need out of this dump, and they would scratch out a living by finding something of value that someone else had thrown away, and they'd sell that and get a little bit of money to survive. But just a poverty-stricken area. And a hopeless, a hopeless community. One day, a man by the name of Fabio Chavez, a young professional musician, he was in the area. He heard about this community. He went, he visited, he saw the conditions that people were living in, and he wanted to do something about it. And so he started this small music school and recruited children who lived in that village on top of that dump to be the musicians. He was gonna teach them how to play instruments. They didn't have any instruments, though. And so there was a a man who lived in that community, Nicholas Gomez, who was a professional trash picker. Like, he, he made his living digging through the trash of that landfill. And Chavez said to Gomez, hey, find me anything in the trash that could possibly be recycled and turned into an instrument. And so they made a cello out of an oil can and cooking tools, a flute from tiny cans, a drum set with old x-ray skins, a violin from a beat-up aluminum salad bowl, and, and he began to teach the children to play these instruments. Here's a clip of this. I watched it, I kept thinking to myself, man, this reminds me of something. Like, it just seemed familiar to me for some reason. And then I realized, oh, this is the church. This is what Jesus has done for us, that he comes to earth. It's a mess. We don't seem to have much hope. But he sees something in us that we don't see in ourselves. And he gives us value that it's hard for us to recognize. And, and then together we, we make music. Together we have, we're broken instruments. But, but because of Jesus, it's something beautiful. And that's what Jesus is going to do for this woman. He sees her. He gives her value. And it's going to give her a purpose to her life that she had been missing But lie number one for her is that Jesus isn't going to want to have anything to do with me. Lie number two, Jesus is more interested in religion than he is in me. That's why during this conversation, she takes takes the discussion towards religion. 
She thinks, well, I can just distract him with this religious argument. He'll get caught up in that. He's going he's gonna to care more about religion than he cares about me. And I think for many people, this is why they've stayed away from church. Is somewhere along the way, they became convinced that it was more about religion than anything else. It was more about ritual, rituals and rule keeping. Uh, if you go to, to church, if you get connected to a church, they're going to they're gonna care more about religion than what's going on in your life. She thinks that's going to be true of Jesus, but, but Jesus is focused on her, what's happening in, in her life. We sometimes in the church get distracted by the religion side of things. I, I got this invitation um, not that long ago to visit one of the small groups in our church who were having some arguments, some division over some theological issue. And they wanted me to come, answer some questions, and, and try to build that bridge. It sounds like a blast. And so uh, before I agreed to go, I, I asked them, what, what's going on? Like, what are we debating here? What's the, uh, this argument about? And they, they had some disagreement about some things surrounding the return of Jesus, the end times, specifically the rapture. Uh, the idea of a rapture is that before Jesus returns, he's going to take all of his followers up to heaven, and then there'll be like these seven years of tribulation, suffering, pain, but if you're raptured, you miss, you miss all of that. That's kind of the idea. They had different uh, uh, perspectives on it. I dug in a little bit more. Specifically, here's what they were arguing about is what would happen to their pets <laughs> if and when the rapture came. They were concerned about um, who would take care of their pets post-rapture and would their pets be raptured. And I encouraged them to find someone who obviously wouldn't be raptured <laughs> and pay a lump sum in advance to cover the costs for post-rapture pet care. I was thinking about even starting my own business, post-rapture pet care, and then and then, I, you know, of course, I made it clear, don't, whatever you do, don't invite this person to, like, an Easter service, because if they get saved, you're going to be starting over. Like, the whole, the whole thing's going to fall apart. No, I didn't say any of that. I didn't even go, right? Like, I, I said, what I said was, I can't make it, but I would encourage you to keep your focus on Jesus, loving Jesus, and loving each other, right? Like, let's not get caught up in these matters of interpretation or these concerns that really aren't that significant or important in light of eternity, but, but that's what the church can sometimes be known for. I got, not too long ago, I got like this 10-page letter from somebody who found a sermon that I preached online about forgiving people, forgiving other people. And they just went through the sermon line by line and just told me everything they felt like was wrong with the sermon. But honestly, the person made some decent points, and if I didn't, you know, if I didn't have to preach a 30-minute sermon, if I had three hours, I might have included a lot more of what he said, but that wasn't, not that I'm defensive about any of this, but 10, like 10 pages of just telling me what's wrong. I didn't know the person. I didn't want to reply through an email because I felt like it would take a really long time, so I just thought, I'm just going to call him. I'm just going to call this person and talk to him. And I pick up the phone, call him, introduce myself, say, hey, I got your uh, book here about my sermon, and I just wanted to work through this with you, kind of answer some questions if I could. Wanna... And, and he was upset, and he was angry, and, and 
I realized fairly quickly, oh, he's been hurt. He is going through something in his life, and he was. And he was just struggling with forgiveness. He didn't mention any of that in the letter. Instead, he wanted to spend the whole time debating some different Greek words and what this meant and what this didn't mean. But in reality, he was hurt deeply and was having a hard time forgiving the person. Jesus seems to recognize that that's true of this woman. Like, she's trying to turn it into this theological argument, but, but there's something deeper there. He knows it because he knows her. He sees it. He calls it out. As a, a church, one of the things that we want to do is go out of our way to make sure to communicate to people, we care about you. Like, this isn't about religion. This is about a relationship with Jesus and one another. I was uh, reading about um, a guy named Tim Winton. He's an award-winning novelist from Australia, a number of bestsellers, and, and he's also a believer. doesn't write Christian books, but he's a believer, and he was being interviewed by the secular publication, and, and they said to him, you know, when you were young, like five years old, you talk about something happening in your family that had a great effect on the rest of your life. Can you tell us about that? And, and, and Tim's father was a police officer who had been in a terrible accident, was hit by a drunk driver, spent weeks in a coma. And Tim, at age five, remembers when his dad was brought home. And they brought his dad into the house, and they put him in a chair that his dad couldn't physically get out of with his own strength. And so Tim just remembers being terrified as he and his mom tried to get his dad out of the chair and into the bed. And he just didn't know what he was going to do. And then the next day, there was a knock on the door at his house. And, and Tim said that he heard a voice of a man that he didn't recognize. The man said, good day. My name is Lynn. I heard, I heard your hubby's not well. Saying this to Tim's mom, I heard your hubby's not well. Is there anything I can do? His name was Lynn Thomas. He was from a church down the road. He'd heard about the family's difficult situation, wanted to help. Lynn said he showed up, and he used to carry my dad from the bed to the bath and bathe him, which isn't the sort of thing you see every day. And Winton explained what a powerful impact that that man's kindness had on him. He says, watching a grown man ask for nothing and just keep showing up to wash a sick man really affected me. He hadn't been to church. Didn't go to Sunday school or VBS. Hadn't heard the gospel as of yet. But there was a follower of Jesus who came and knocked on their door and said, is there anything I can do to help? And then he just kept showing up. That's the out of the crowd moment. He feels, feels seen by Jesus because he's seen and known by a follower of Jesus. And it just made, it made all of the difference. I... Uh, I got this email not long ago from a lady that doesn't go to our church. But let me share this with you. She wrote and she said, I'd like to share with you an experience I had yesterday. I work in a long-term care facility and I had a long day. My dad has been sick and, and has pneumonia. When I got home from work, I had taken him to the ER. I looked down at my gas gauge. It was almost on empty and I didn't get paid until Friday. My daughter went with me 
And on our way back from the ER, when we were two streets away from our house, guess what happened? The car cut off. I was out of gas. I was so frustrated and upset. And then a man pulled over to help me. He said, I I can take you guys to get gas. I told him that I had no money, and I just really, more than anything, wanted to get my car home and just wanted to go home. Without hesitation, he pushed my car two streets up to my house. When we got home, I thanked him. I told him that my dad just went into the hospital. He asked for his name and asked if we could pray for him. And my daughter and I said yes, and he did, right there. He prayed for my family, and then just like that, he disappeared. He was wearing a T-shirt that said alive in big white letters, which is the, the shirt that he was baptized in. I found out later that he went to your church, and I just wanted to thank God for him. And then she ended her email to me this way. His prayer made me realize that God is always watching. God has been speaking to my heart since that happened. She was known. She was known because somebody saw her and loved her. Finally, line number three, he's making an offer that just seems too good to be true. She's hiding behind this skepticism that that she had learned over the years that if somebody's promising something that's too good to be true, then it probably is. She thinks that's what's happening here with Jesus. My guess is that she's been promised many things by many men, and she had just learned to be quite skeptical of a man who would promise something. And so when Jesus is speaking of living water, she just, she's just cynical, and she's hiding, behind this, um, she's hiding behind this lie that what Jesus is offering her, is, it's not for her, and it's too good to be true. Verse 25, she's confused. She just wants to stay hidden, wants to be done with the conversation. So she says in verse 25 to Jesus, I know that the Messiah called Christ, when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And I know Jesus' smile. Because what she says to him, she says to Christ, I know when Christ comes. He'll explain it all. And what happens next is this beautiful scene. Jesus reveals himself to her. It is the only time in his entire life where he so voluntarily, so candidly, so clearly tells someone, I am Jesus, the son of God. I'm the Messiah. It's the only time where he does it with this kind of clarity. Here's what he says. He says, I am. The one speaking to you, I am he. He lets himself be known. He knows her. And things just melt away. So Morgan runs up the steps, hides behind the chair. I I go up and find her. It wasn't difficult. (laughs) And she's got the big crocodile tears going and I said, hey, come downstairs, come downstairs. We walked back into that room. My wife and I put our arms around her and we talked to her and she said how sorry she was. And my wife bent over and told her, hey, you could never make a stain so big that would change how much we love you. We love you. No matter what the stain is, we love you. It's okay. We forgive you. And so this strange thing started to happen. Again, she's about five at the time, where people would come over to our house to visit, like, you know, some staff or a small group or 
friends would come over to our house to visit, and when they would come over to our house to visit, Morgan would want to take the people who were visiting to that room and point to that couch and tell the story. And I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, why is she telling people the story of the couch? Why is she telling people the story of her stain? Why wouldn't she want to keep that hidden? Why does she want to tell people about it? And then I realized in her five-year-old brain, that stain for a long time had been the symbol of guilt and shame, but it became a symbol of love and acceptance. And she just wanted people to know, this is how I'm loved. This is how I'm seen. This is how I'm cared for. And that's what happens in John 4. The Bible tells us that this woman, after this interaction with Jesus, verse 29, went back into her village, people she was avoiding and hiding from, and and now she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this possibly be the Messiah? And she's excited because there's someone who told her everything she ever did. The stain became a symbol of being seen and loved. And that's what we celebrate We celebrate that this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus had to go through Samaria. I I think this this date was circled on God's calendar. I don't think it was a mistake that Jesus went there then, and she showed up when she didn't. And listen, you might be skeptical of this, but I believe that for, for some of you here, some of you at the campuses, I really believe that this is that. Like maybe you didn't want to come today. You hadn't planned on coming. You're here. Somebody asked you. You got tired of telling them no. Fine, I'll go. And I wonder if this is your out of the crowd moment. Like I wonder if God had this date and this time and this place circled on his calendar and it's just no it's no accident that you're here. It's no accident that I'm here. Like God has just brought this all together because he wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to hide anymore. He wants you to experience his grace and his love, and he wants you to tell other people about it. Let's pray. God, I thank you uh, for the grace that you've shown us through Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that, um, that you see us and that you know us. And that when we hide from you, you know right where we are. You know our story. You know everything that we've done or what's been done to us. You know the mess. But you still came and you loved us. And we can be free from that. So I pray that we would experience your light. And that light would give us joy and peace and freedom. God, I pray that as a church that we would see people the way that you saw people that the way we love others would let them be seen and known by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, Thanks, you guys. Great being here. We'll see you next week.